1: and Candid Conversations. I am your host, Nico Perino. September 25th was First Amendment Day in America, the anniversary of the date in 1789 when Congress approved 12 amendments to our Constitution. So today we're going to discuss the history of America's First Amendment and its five freedoms with a particular focus on the free speech and free press clauses. How did the First Amendment become the First Amendment? What were the founders thinking and doing when they drafted it? How was it interpreted once it was enacted? And has its meaning changed over the course of its 230-year lifespan? Joining us for this journey through history is Professor Akil Reed Amar. Professor Amar is the Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science at Yale University, where he has taught since 1985 when he joined the faculty at just 26 years old. Professor Amar has won numerous awards and been cited by the Supreme Court in more than 40 cases, the most citations of his generation, He hosts a fascinating podcast, which I will recommend to you all, called America's Constitution. And he recently released a book about the Constitution titled The Words That Made Us, America's Constitutional Conversation, 1760 to 1840. That book, along with two journal articles about the First Amendment, will form the backbone of our discussion today. Those articles are the First Amendment's firstness, which Professor Amar published in 2014, and How America's Constitution... Affirmed freedom of speech even before the First Amendment, which he published in 2010. Professor Amar, welcome onto the show. Nico, it's great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. So, we're talking about the First Amendment today. So, I think in order to properly set up this conversation, I want to start by reading all 45 words of that amendment. It, <laughs> it goes Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, or the right of the people, peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. So let's get down to brass tacks here. That's the amendment. How did the framers conceptualize the need to enumerate the five, or some people say six, freedoms within the First Amendment? Some background here. The Constitution was approved by the delegates to the Constitutional Convention in 1787 without the First Amendment, which wouldn't come to over four years later. So how do we get to a place where the First Amendment is seen as needed?
0: Um, So I've told this story in different uh, ways at different times. And truthfully, I think the most recent telling in the new book, The Words That Made Us, is the best. I wrote a book um, published in 1998 based on um, some articles, the first one in the Yale Law Journal in 1991. That article was called uh, The Bill of Rights as a Constitution. And uh, the book that eventually came out of it in 1998 was called The Bill of Rights, Creation and Reconstruction. And in those tellings of the story, I I tended to start in the first Congress with James Madison um, in um, uh, uh, the summer of uh, um, uh, 1789, basically um, uh, um, introducing some amendments that get uh, passed through Congress um, late that summer, 1789, and then passed on to the states for ratification. Stuff obviously had happened before, but in my narrative, that was largely backstory. I, I kind of really foregrounded Madison's authorship. That's a conventional way to do it. Um, and I now realize that that misses a lot. Um, and so in the new version, I emphasize, because um, this new book, as you mentioned, The Words That Made Us, which is, and it's all about words and, and words about words, like the First Amendment. The First Amendment is words about words. Um, Uh, about speech, about press. Um, And uh, um, in this new version, um, the words that made us, the story begins in 1760, um, not in 1789. And here's the first big, big point um, that is relevant to to your your question. I now um, uh, emphasize much more than ever before how what we call the First Amendment really doesn't originate in the mind of Madison Um, It originates in the very process by which the original Constitution is ratified. Um, It begins, as it were, with the preamble, with we, the people of the United States, in actual fact, ordaining and establishing the Constitution. And that occurs in 1787-88. September 1787 is when the Constitution goes public. It's published. In, a, in publications, newspapers, for the general public in a Republican society, and it's printed start to finish. And why am I telling you all that? Because there is freedom of the press before there's a First Amendment, you see. The press is absolutely free to publish the Constitution, and, it, and newspapers up and down the continent do. No one's telling them what to do, how to do it. They just are choosing to do that. Most of them, or many of them, put the preamble in especially big font because they understand this is a big deal. Um, Since you said this is an uncensored um, (laughs) conversation, I could even say it's a big effing deal um, to actually put the thing to a vote up and down the continent. How epic is that? Um, But not just a vote. There's freedom of speech and debate about the Constitution itself. You're free to uh, support it. You're free to oppose it, and here's the first thing that people start to say when they see the thing that's published in mid September. They say, "Dudes, where are the rights? You know, you you forgot to have a bill of rights. State constitutions have bills of rights. Why isn't there one in the federal constitution?" And that turns out to be one of the two biggest objections that the critics of the Constitution, the so-called anti-federalists, have. And it was there demand for um, uh, a Bill of Rights that would ultimately culminate in what we call the First Amendment. So I was starting the story way too late when I was starting with Madison in in Congress in 1789, rather than the people up and down the continent in 1787-88, a whole year of epic free speech, free debate. The people who opposed the Constitution were actually listened to. Um, and, and and the very process of adopting the Constitution
1: was an epic act of free speech. Yeah, you write in your book, or I, I believe it was actually in one of your articles, here's the key fact. Americans in 78, 1787 through 88 exercised remarkably robust, wide open, virtually uninhibited freedom of political expression as they pondered the constitutional text proposed by the Philadelphia framers. And you also talk about how Madison himself, I'm quoting you here, wondered whether the Constitution could ever have been adopted had existing state governments tried to suppress criticism of their own lapses. Seen from this angle, broad free expression was chronologically first. It was part of the very enactment process by which the Constitution was born. But could you even go further back than that? Functionally, it seemed, even under British rule, as though the colonists exercised free speech rights, even under laws that Sought to censor. I'm thinking back here to the trial of John Peter Zenger, which I believe came in, in the 1740s, if I'm not misremembering. 1730s. Yeah. 1730s. You have liberty polls during the revolution and before the revolution. So functionally, Americans were exercising free speech rights long before even the conversation around the Constitution was happening. And when they passed the con- Constitution without the Bill of Rights, was it just a presumption that, of course, we're going to be able to exercise our free speech rights? That's what we've been doing for the past number of years. Many of the state constitutions uh, protect these rights. How, how should we think about it in that way? Um, Nika, you're asking just the right questions. We're beginning to work backwards, you see, because um, my
0: Bill of Rights article, my Bill of Rights book tended to, as I say, foreground Madison in the first Congress. So we've now, I said, well, we have to actually start the story at least a, a year or two before in the process of adopting the Constitution. And you're saying, oh, we've got to go back even further. And you're absolutely right. Now, my new book, it doesn't go back to Zenger. And it doesn't go back to Zenger um, in the 1730s because that's not going to immediately lead to the American Revolution. So here's Act 1, Scene 1 of my new book. The new book starts in 1760, and here's why. Because um, um, at the end of the day, the American Revolution is a revolt against a particular person, a king, King George II. And so I Act One, Scene One is the very first moment that Americans um, um, uh, learn that he's their new king. Um, it's uh, December 17, late December 1760, and word arrives in the New World that the old king is dead. George II and his grandson, the 22-year-old George the Thing, uh, George the is now their, their their new king, their new sovereign, and and they they raise their 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 glasses to him. They they toast him. They pledge their loyalty. to him. They're very happy and proud Britons in America. Um, and so 1730s is not really very continuous, um, because, you know, that was a, d- a different, um, George, George the first, probably, um, maybe George, uh, so, so I begin in 1760 and everything seems hunky dory. Um, and I begin with actually people exercising their ability to assemble together and they're assembling actually to hail their new king and, and, uh, um, uh, and, and, um, and, and, and toast him. Immediately thereafter, um, Parliament starts imposing um, taxes on uh, uh, the colonists and they're pushing back against that. Um, And um, that's actually um, an epic free speech episode in 1765 and and, um, and I'm going to tell you just a, a little bit about that, the Stamp Act crisis. And that's how many people begin the story of the American Revolution when Parliament starts to tax America in 1764-65, Sugar Act, Stamp Act. I say, oh, start it earlier. Start with actually, first of all, in 1760, Americans saying, um, uh, uh, hail King George, um, uh, long live the king. And then immediately thereafter, it turns out there's this interesting court case involving um, a thing called the writs of assistance. And that's freedom of speech as well, because you've got this rabble-rousing lawyer um, who's um, criticizing certain things that the British are are, are are doing, even before the Stamp Act. And and he's, he's basically playing to the crowd. He loses the court case, but he gets some newspaper coverage, and he gets uh, some local press coverage, and he parlays that. His name is James Otis, and he's going to parlay that into... Um, a political campaign. So he gets elected to the Massachusetts Assembly. He's um, his father was Speaker of the House of the Massachusetts Assembly. He's the great, he's gonna become the great colonial rabble rouser before Patrick Henry, before Samuel Adams, before Thomas Jefferson. So that's 1760, 61, and he's using free speech in a courtroom and 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 right and, and, and trying to get press attention. Okay. So so now the press is going to start to be important. Um, People in other places, other colonies aren't covering this. So it's just a a Boston story, a Massachusetts story initially. Oh, but when Parliament in 1760s, uh, 1764, 65 starts to tax all America, um, um, there's going to be pushback, not just in, in Massachusetts, but in Virginia, up and down the continent. For the first time ever, there's going to be an assembly. Remember, First Amendment our first amendment talks about the uh, freedom of assembly, they're going to actually, the colonists up and down the continent are going to come up with an intercolonial assembly. It's called the Stamp Act Congress to mobilize opposition to parliament to express their grievances using freedom of speech. Um, It's going to get published in all the newspapers, freedom of the press, and the person who more than anyone else sparks and organizes the Stamp Act Congress, is named James Otis. And his first real appearance on a public scene was in the Writs of Assistance case, which is my Act One, Scene One um, in 1761. So my first chapter is James Otis, the rabble-rouser is gonna become a really important a colonial, uh, a patriot figure. There's this obscure lawyer. No one's ever heard of him before, but he's in the room taking notes. His name is John Adams. Um, and later on, he's going to um, uh, actually be not so heroic on, on Freedom of the Press. We're going to talk about the Sedition Act, I, I, I hope, today. But he, You're also but, just
1: not a big fan of John Adams, generally, if I've heard your commentary. So
0: about- I'm, I'm going to criticize him. But on this one, Look, but for John Adams, I wouldn't have actually stumbled across probably this writs of assistance controversy. 50 years later, he says that's actually when the revolution began. That's when independence. John Adams said that? Yes, that's oh, when this really? was born. Now, part of the reason he said that is because he was in the room and he, <laughs> he wanted everyone to know that he was there before. And part of it is because he's such a, a, um, um, a biased. A um, uh, uh, Bostonian or a, um, a Massachusetts man. Um, so he's saying, like you know, before there was Thomas Jefferson, before there was Patrick Henry, before there was George Washington, it was in Boston when it all started in 1760, 61. So he's there in the room. You got the the leading um, early colonial rabble rouser, patriot James Otis, um, making this uh, 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 this speech is, uh, um, that that people are paying attention to. Oh, and you got America's leading loyalist, the guy who's going to become the most distinguished, most respected American-born backer of King George. His name is Thomas Hutchinson, and he's in the room as well. He's actually one of the judges. So I've got these fascinating characters, and it's a free speech, free press story, but only Massachusetts is paying attention. Four years later, oh, James Otis is going to organize a stamp act, Congress pushing back against parliamentary taxation up and down the continent. Otis, as much as anyone coins the phrase, Taxation without representation is tyranny. That's a James Otis phrase, and, and it starts to resonate. But here's the thing about the Stamp Act. Everyone, you know, is a very um, a knowledgeable audience that we have for, for this podcast and for Marcus Constitution, by the way. We've got a, a good uh, um, uh, learned audience also. They've heard of no taxation without representation. They've heard of the Stamp Act. They know that Parliament you know, um, was criticized for imposing taxes on America when Americans weren't represented in Parliament. Here's what they don't know, that that tax was a tax on all sorts of paper goods. It was a tax on deeds, on wills, on contracts, but it was also a tax on newspapers. It was, you know, um, uh, and, and newspapers at the time weren't paying for content. Um, they basically were just it was paper and ink and, and they were aggregators and advertisers. People would pay to have their advertisements um, in, in the press and 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 scribblers would just send in um, free material over the transom um, and, and they and, and they won't get get paid. They're not staffers, but they get published. Okay. So so if that's your business model, oh, you're not gonna like a tax on paper. Um, and so who pushes back hard against the Stamp Act? It's newspapers up and down the continent. And this is in 1765. So yes, we're pushing the story back from Madison in 1789 the first Congress to adoption of the Constitution in 1787. But now, oh, two decades earlier, newspapers are playing a huge role in pushing back against the Stamp Act. And here's one thing that they do. They simply publish their newspapers without paying for the stamp. And, and some of them actually mockingly put in a little blank space where the stamp is supposed to go, or they put in a mock stamp of their own um, um, uh, uh, creation. So newspapers up and down the continent in 1765 are using their freedom of the press to push back against Parliament.
1: Yeah, you write in your book, The Words That Made Us, that unwittingly the act enabled newspapermen to mock Parliament simply by ignoring it. And doing that, the press had always done print words on paper. Now, some of the newspaper men were a little bit cautious at the beginning. They didn't print their names on the masthead, for example, or they stopped publishing for a little while just to see kind of how the situation would shake out. But then it seems that a lot of them just ignored it. And one of the things that struck me in reading your book, especially this part about it, um, was how much of their opposition to the Stamp Act wasn't rooted in any sort of concerns for the viability of their business or the economy, it seemed to be rooted in a philosophical appreciation and sense for what liberty is and what free press and free speech is. You have the Boston Gazette, for example, saying it seems very manifest from the Stamp Act itself that a design is formed to strip us in a great measure of the means of knowledge. That's a philosophical argument about that the press is a necessary component for an educated populace, for the production and 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 dissemination of knowledge. You also have uh, quote, an editorial from another newspaper, which is an ode to the press as the test of truth, the bulwark of public safety and the guardian of freedom. I, I will ask you though, because that Boston Gazette quote, they, they, uh, censor the word, the stamp, the, the phrase stamp act itself. So I wondered if there was some sort of thing that they couldn't say, or that would clue the The would-be censors in, or the would-be police into, to to their articles if they had, for example, used the phrase itself, or if it's that's just kind of a pejorative against the stamp act, or the kind of like um, Voldemort and Harry Potter, it it shall not be named. He who
0: shall not be named. (laughs) So I'm not sure on that specific thing whether they were they thought somehow um, that would somehow protect them against punishment or something like that. But here's what is um, uh, uh, amazing about um, that. uh, th- uh, those quotes that you you have so now there's pushback not just about taxation but um, a- about sort of press regulation in effect the they're saying gee you're you're putting a tax on on um college um diplomas and and newspapers and books and almanacs and and uh, the means of of uh, uh, of of communication and and, and that's um uh, particularly problematic. Uh, So, Nico, here's the amazing thing about this 1765 Boston Gazette um, uh, uh, little excerpt. And and just to repeat it, it seems very manifest from the Stamp Act, although they they, they take out some of the letters. It's S-P, A-C. It seems very manifest from the Stamp Act itself that design is formed to strip us in a great measure of the means of knowledge, by loading the press, the colleges, and even an almanac and a newspaper with restraints and duties. Um, um, And uh, um, and then uh, later on, this Connecticut newspaper talks about um, the press as, as you said, the test of truth, the bulwark of public safety, the guardian of freedom. What's really interesting is that Gazette piece is written by anonymously John Adams. And maybe it's anonymous because he's afraid possibly of, of reprisal, but that's his first, um, he, he's just turning 30, um, and, and that's his, um, uh, 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 he's, a, he's a week shy of his 30th birthday, and that's his first important statement on um, parliamentary power. What well, we become the revolution. And you see, it's pro speech and pro press, which makes it so sad that later in life he's gonna forget all of this stuff and try to punish newspapers who criticized him, even though he had used newspapers as a young man to criticize um, other officials. He forgot where he came from. And that's why he's a one-term failed president, ultimately. He's the only early president who who, uh, doesn't get reelected. Washington two terms and and walks away. Um, Jefferson two terms and chooses to walk away. Madison Monroe. Each two terms and then voluntary steps down. Adams is the only early president who loses. And I believe he loses because he forgot where he came from, where America came from. And as you and I are talking, where America came from is freedom of speech and of the press. And and it doesn't begin with Madison in 1789 in the first Congress or even in the ratification of the Constitution. Yet yeah, begins much earlier. You know, we could go back to Zenger, but I'm showing a continuous unfolding of, of, of press exercise and broad exercises of speech, press, petition, assembly, and the like um, in the 1760s. You know what that stand back Congress does? It petitions Congress and petitions the king for redress of grievances. And, and the later Continental Congresses, the first Continental Congress in 1774 is going to do the same thing. And the second Continental Congress in 1775 is going to do the same thing. What are they doing? They're assembling petitioning, they're getting their pronouncements um, uh, published in newspapers, Um, um, Freedom of the Press. That's what Americans are doing. And the British are trying to shut all that down and they're not listening. And, And George III, I say, loses America for a simple reason. He doesn't read American newspapers and he's not actually paying attention to what's going on and Americans increasingly are reading American newspapers. And you say, well, of course, I'm saying, no, it's not that Bostonians are reading Boston newspapers, and New Yorkers are reading New York newspapers, and Philadelphians are reading Philadelphia newspapers. By the 17, mid-1760s, Philadelphians are reading New York newspapers. And and Boston newspapers, they're they're retweeting um, (laughs) each uh, each other's essays. Because again, they're not paying for content very much, but basically they're they're aggregating and there's the beginning of a a continental, even indeed, frankly, a world discourse, um, because they're also trying to talk back and forth with folks in London um, about these important issues of British constitutional law, no taxation without representation, um, freedom of the press and the like.
1: I've always wondered this about the Bill of Rights. So at the beginning of this conversation, I alluded to the fact that there were 12 amendments that were sent off the states for ratification um, after being passed by the Congress. Only 10 of them come back. Um, But they just so happen to be the 10 that deal most squarely with rights, you know, the rights of the people. The first two amendments, and correct me if I'm wrong here, dealt with how Congress could pay itself, the process by which it could pay itself. Another one dealt with like, how representatives would be apportioned or something like that. The rest deal, to a certain extent, with the rights that we have. That's why we call it the Bill of Rights. Did the Congress that sent these 12 amendments off to the states conceive of a Bill of Rights as we think of it today? Or did they just think these are the 10 additional articles that we want to add to the Constitution and just so happens that 10 of them deal with um, rights and the other two, two deal with procedure?
0: Okay. So let me fill in a couple of the missing pieces of our chronology Yeah, I think it will fall into place. And again, I didn't tell the story quite this way in my 1998 book on the Bill of Rights because I started the story too late. Okay, so we're starting our story in 1760 and Americans are lo- are, are, are learning from newspapers that they've got a new king. So actually my first um, paragraph of the whole of, 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 of chapter one um. You're going to hear, if you listen carefully, repeated allusions to news and newspapers. So here's how uh, the book begins, chapter one. The news reached America on a steed that had no legs but promised swiftness. The merchant ship Racehorse landed in Boston on Saturday, Saturday, December 27, 1760, um, after 40 days on a choppy ocean that both connected and divided old England and new England. The trader bore incontrovertible tidings from early November British newspapers, copies of which Captain Samuel Partridge immediately distributed to Boston print shops for partial republication. As passengers and crew came aboard, word also spread from mouth to mouth. The old king was dead and the young king now sat on the throne. So you're seeing here newspapers, print shops, people talking, what we are going to call the First Amendment. Um, So the news reaches America. That's act one, scene one. We've got a new king. Immediately thereafter, there's a court case because with a new king, there's actually a requirement um, that all the old um, um, uh, writs that used to issue in the name of King George II now have to issue in the name of a new king. And this generated a court case and James Otis this rabble-rousing lawyer is gonna to use to actually criticize certain um, um, uh, British practices, okay? And he's, tr- and he's making an appeal, basically he loses the court case, but he wins in the court of public opinion because there's an audience there, this is freedom of speech, people are gathered, this is freedom of assembly, um, and n- local newspapers cover it, um, a, a, lo- a local newspaper, but no one outside of Boston's paying attention. And the Stamp Act comes along, and parliament is actually taxing all of America. And so the Americans start paying attention to each other. Boston is listening to New York and Philadelphia and Charleston, and Americans are starting to coordinate and listen to each other and make appeals to Britain, newspaper essays back and forth, and a stamp Act Congress, a, 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 a continental assembly, for the first time, Americans assembling up and down the continent against Britain. That had never happened before. And remember, the organizer of that Stamp Act Congress it meets in New York in 1765 is James Otis. Um, and <clears throat> what are they doing? They're petitioning the king, they're petitioning parliament and they're getting newspapers to print out all of their protest. And local colonial assemblies, as in freedom of assembly, are doing the same thing and getting local newspapers to print out their protest. So they're petitioning and assembling and, and, and getting press coverage. Okay, that's 1765. The Brits, instead of listening, increasingly try to shut down American discourse. Um, and, and eventually there's going to be um, a fighting war. Lexington and Concord and Bunker because the Brits aren't listening, aren't reading. They're trying to shut down this burgeoning uh, discourse. Now, here's the missing piece that we didn't fill in. Americans adopt state constitutions and a Declaration of Independence. The Declaration is designed to be, it's short so it can appear in newspapers, so it can be read aloud in gatherings, in assemblies, so it can be read to the troops. So the Declaration of Independence is part of this newspaper and assembly and free speech revolution. And the state constitutions that immediately emerge in 1776, every one of them is very short and published start to finish in newspapers. um, so you're
1: saying that was a conscious decision to make them short, the Declaration of Independence, the constitutions? Yes.
0: Written constitutions, written declarations are all about newspapers. And so they're short. You can't have the American Revolution and the American constitutional tradition without newspapers. And these are printed um, um, start to finish. And, 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 and here's the key. This is the missing link. These state um, constitutions, most of them have Sections called bills of rights, um, and many of those sections with bills of rights actually talk about, for example, liberty of the press or freedom of the press. Um, some of them will later actually talk about freedom of speech. Sometimes it's freedom of speech and debate in a legislative assembly. Um, in um, um, uh, but, but and, and sometimes even more more broadly. Um, so, um, and 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 the and the people in Massachusetts are reading that. Pennsylvania Declaration of Rights um, and the Maryland Declaration of Rights. So there, there, there's there's intercolonial conversation. The Massachusetts, the Pennsylvania, excuse me, the Virginia Declaration of Rights, which will become the Virginia Bill of Rights, is drafted by George Mason. The first draft is published, not just in uh, Virginia, but republished in at least four Philadelphia newspapers in June um, of 1776. So. Franklin is reading it. Jefferson is reading it. Adams is reading it. As they're composing the Declaration of Independence, they've already got this a proto-state Bill of Rights drafted by George Mason. And, and newspapers across America are, are reprinting these and ba- mixing and matching and barring from all that. So that's why Americans, in um, when the, the Constitution is made public, the first thing they say is, you forgot the rights because they've seen state constitutions and state constitutions have bills of rights. The U.S. Constitution looks a lot like state constitutions. It's got It's written. It's got a bicameral legislature, which every state has except Pennsylvania and Georgia. Um, um, it's, it, it's got um, an, uh, a separate judiciary, which every state has. Um, um, uh, um, but every state, uh, most states also have bills of rights of rights and that, oh, of state constitutions in Massachusetts and and, and New Hampshire were put to a special vote. And the U.S. Constitution is um, designed to be put to a special vote. And as soon as it becomes public in September, 1787, in that process of putting it to a vote, remember there's free speech, people are talking about it. And and freedom of the press, newspapers are printing copies of, of the constitution by the tens of thousands. The first thing ordinary people say is, where is the bill of rights because state constitutions have one and this looks like a state constitution this proposed federal constitution but it's missing a thing called the bill of rights um so so that's what they demand and here's the deal in the course of ratifying they make they have many objections but two are especially prominent one the house of representatives is too small to be truly representative it's just too tiny compared to state constitu- state legislatures parliament has 550 members um, many states have hundreds of members in in um, um uh, there are only going to be 65 members of the first house that's smaller than the house of representatives in 11 of the st- or 10 or 11 of the states okay um so virginia its state legislature has let's say 300 or 400 members, but they're only going to be 10 members of Congress, you know, from all of Virginia. There are 1,500 to 2,000 state assemblymen up and down the continent, and they're only going to be 65 members of Congress. That's too small. That's their first objection, and it's going to become the original First Amendment. Okay, the Congress is going to need to be bigger. It doesn't get passed, but it's the original um, First Amendment on the list of 12. that was one of their big objections, and it's not a surprise that that was the original First Amendment. It just doesn't get ratified. Um, but their second big objection, the two biggest objections of the anti federalists is, dude, you forgot the rights, and here's what the Federalists say about both of those. They say, oh, you're right about both of those. We, maybe, we goofed. They pivot. Um, uh, Madison and, and, and Washington, in the end, who did not back a Bill of Rights at Philadelphia. Who proposed a Bill of Rights at Philadelphia behind closed doors? Wait for it. His name is George Mason. He's the author of the Virginia Declaration of Rights of 1776. He said, hey, you know, I'll compose one for the federal government. It's late um, in, um, in, in, in the summer. People are tired. They make a mistake. They just say, we want to go home. Okay? <laughs> so they don't list because Mason says, oh, I can do it quickly. And they're thinking this will be another two weeks and I want to go home. Um, so they make a mistake. Um, they don't add it. And the first thing that Americans say is you forgot the rights. And the other thing they, they say is the house is too small. It's not really representative of the diversity of America. What do the federal say in response in this year long ratification process? Cause it's not just putting the thing to a vote. It's talking about it with newspaper essays in conventions, which are as people the people assembling, you see face-to-face discussing the thing, clause by clause, idea by idea. In this conversation, the constitution is the product of this epic continental conversation. Um, and in that conversation, the federal say, okay, we goofed. So here's, here's what we propose. If you will ratify, if you will say, yes, we'll work with you to fix the thing. Um, we'll, um, the original Congress was too small, but that was just because we didn't have a census and we were just making up some numbers. As soon as we have a first census, we will try to grow the Congress as fast as possible. And you're right. We should have a bill of rights that, you know, in, in certain respects, so we'll work with you to come up with a, a, a good set of, of, of rights. And and Madison keeps his word, because if he doesn't keep his word, oh, it's not just that that was required to get the Constitution ratified, this, this promise by the, the Federalists. Madison has to make this promise in order to get elected to the first Congress. He has to make this promise to his own constituents who actually say, you know, we're not going to send you to Congress, you know, if if you're not all in on rights. They trust him in part because long before he had been a champion of religious freedom. And um, which is where's that all coming from? George Mason's state declaration of rights that had actually a provision about religious freedom um, as well as freedom of the press. And actually, Madison thought it was too weak and he strengthened it. Madison has credibility with his constituents, especially on religious rights, which are going to be part of what the First Amendment's about. So he says in effect, he publishes several newspaper essays that in effect and, and letters to friends that get that reprint to say, okay, I goofed. Um, we should probably we should have um, uh, 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 some rights in the Constitution and if I'm in Congress, I'll work to get them adopted. That's the backstory that I didn't tell in a sufficiently wholesome, and complete way in my 1998 book that I do tell in the new book.
1: The the five freedoms, or, or you know, depends how you break out the religion clause. Six freedoms in the First Amendment. You know, we have religion, press, speech, assembly, petition. Were the in the state constitutions were those always grouped together, or is this a novel? Uh, construction in the in the federal Constitution. I think of the First Amendment almost when you think of those five freedoms as kind of the conscience amendment uh, more than I, I do any... And The word conscience isn't even in there, but it protects the conscience of its citizenry.
0: And, and the word conscience is in a lot of their discourse. Um, Jefferson isn't there at Philadelphia. He's off in France. When he finally sees what's in the Constitution, he and Madison are very close. Why are they very close? Because, Nico, way back in 1776, they worked together to affirm religious freedom. Um, to, um, 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 Madison um, um, got George Mason to broaden the affirmation of religious freedom in the Virginia Bill of Rights. And then Madison and Jefferson kept working later on to get an even more um, expansive affirmation of religious rights that didn't get added to the Virginia Bill of uh, of rights, but did uh, was a 1785 Virginia statute, the Bill of Religious Freedom that Madison and Jefferson worked together to accomplish. So, so these guys are friends, and they bonded over an idea of rights, in particular, religious rights, religious freedom. When the Constitution comes out, um, and because it, it was it met in in secret, but as soon as um, its proposal was uh, was released, the delegates were free to talk about what had happened in the convention. And Madison sends Jefferson, a, who's off in France, a copy of the proposed Constitution, um, and he starts to also tell him, "Here's what happened in the Philadelphia Convention." And Jefferson immediately sends back and says, "I like a whole bunch of things. Here's what I don't like." There's no Bill of Rights. So that's front and center. Um, in Jeff- and, and Madison initially fobs him off and Jefferson adds, writes a second letter and a third Jefferson is relentless. And Jefferson keeps saying, you forgot the rights, you forgot the rights, you forgot the rights. And in those letters, you will see words like conscience. And in broader discourse, you will see words like conscience. And it's in um, the Virginia um, uh, Bill of Religious Freedom and in, in, in state constitutions. So here's the interesting thing that you're asking. And it's just the right question to ask. How does the organization of the federal um, uh, clauses um, and um, and, and the uh, the words in them, how do those compare to what's in state constitutions? And here's the answer. Yes, many state constitutions had liberty of the press. Fewer had freedom of speech and uh, several had religious um, freedom provisions not non-establishment, most states had established religions of one sort or another, but um, um, uh, um, but um, they've got religion clauses and they've got expression clauses, uh, especially freedom of the press, sometimes freedom of speech, but they never in any state constitution push them together into a single cluster. So one question they're asking is, why are these things clustered together in what we call the first amendment, which was actually third on the list? Um, so first is what was the order all about, and why were they clustered? Here's what the order was all about. Um, it wasn't. We today think the First Amendment's is there because it's most important, um, but remember it was third on the original Congress's list, and this is the first two to get ratified. So if when judges, justices have said it's first because it's most important, and that's a little bit like it reminds me of I think it was maybe <clears throat> Ma Ferguson or maybe it was Archie Bunker, who knows, who said if English was good enough for Jesus Christ, it's good enough for me. Because <laughs> it's not true, but, we, we, you know, you can understand why people think that way. Okay. So um, the order of what we call the Bill of Rights, the order of these original amendments was driven by the following. Originally, they were going to be added into the text of the original Constitution rather than appended as postscripts. So they were just tracking the order of the original Constitution. So what was the big, what was the, uh, one big problem? Congressional size. That's Article 1, Section 6. So that's their First Amendment, okay? Congressional pay, that's Article 1, you know, Section 6. That's the the original Second Amendment. Third Amendment was Congressional powers, and that's going to be our First Amendment. How does it begin? Congress shall make no law. The original idea um, was that Congress had no enumerated power in certain areas. Um, Congress had no – what what, what does the um, Constitution say? Congress shall have power to make all laws that are necessary and proper in various areas. And the First Amendment is saying Congress shall make no law. Um, so it's, it's building on this claim. And the claim was there's no enumerated power in certain areas over expression. To, there's no enumerated power to restrict free expression. And there's no enumerated power to regulate religion. Um, and they get smushed together initially for reasons of federalism, more than for reasons of rights. Why do I say that? Because no state mushes them together that way. Um, State bills of rights have religion clauses and expression clauses, but they're different. They're not in the same cluster. Only the U.S. Constitution pushes them together. Originally, actually, they um, um, were separate provisions in, in James Madison's initial uh, Proposal. They get uh, eventually um, um, stitched together, and I say it's largely for reasons of federalism. What what do you
1: mean by that? Reasons of federalism.
0: That the Congress has no enumerated power over Mm -hmm. these areas. Where see, Congress does have power over search and seizure because you're going to need to have um, searches and seizures to enforce customs laws. So there is power. To regulate um, or to enforce tax laws, you're going to need sometimes to to inspect warehouses to make sure they're not cheating the taxman. That was the writs of Assistance case of James Otis, it was actually about customs duties. So there is enumerated power um, to have um, uh, ser- very search and seizure laws. There's a enumer- you you have to have courts, and so um, the provision there are provisions that regulate courts, and courts are in Article Three. Due, they have to have due process, the Fifth Amendment says, and the Sixth Amendment says, oh, you have to have a public trial and a jury trial. Well, there's surely enumerated power to have court. That's Article 3. But but many um, uh, folks said there is simply, Congress has no power whatsoever to regulate religion. That's left to the states. And remember, some states have established churches. The original Establishment Clause doesn't say, um, it, it does say Congress can't create a national church, true, but it it also, in effect, says Congress can't disestablish state churches because that would be a law respecting, a law on the topic of, a law in regards to, in reference to uh, established church. So at the time of the founding, half the states have strongly established churches and, and many states actually have um, weak establishments of a certain sort. You have to you have religious tests in order to be um, a government official. There are only two states that don't have religious tests um, to hold, uh, to hold office, Virginia and New York. And New York is actually modifying that um, even at the time of the, of the Constitution. Can I, can I
1: ask you about these uh, enumerated rights, right? The arguments from the Federalist, if I'm understanding it correctly, is that, well, we don't need a Bill of Rights because to create a Bill of Rights uh, to tell the federal government that it can't do something presumes essentially that, you know, that they're, well, the Constitution only tells them what they can do, right? Of course they can't abridge the freedom of speech or of the press or, you know, the right of people to practice a religion because the Constitution doesn't give them the right uh, to do that. So then they then they add the Bill of Rights because people want that or the anti-federalists want that. This is kind of a broader question in hindsight here. You have the Ninth Amendment, which seems to be the... uh, the compromise there, it says, you know, all the rights not enumerated here are, you know, are still respected. Justice Bork or Judge Bork, excuse me, if it wasn't confirmed, called that an ink blot. In in retrospect, who do you think was right on that debate? Do you think to enumerate certain rights kind of created a set of rights for which no other one will be expect, uh, respected? Like how often is the Ninth Amendment <laughs> enforced? Right, you you get you get the uh, Reconstruction Amendments and you get the Privileges and Immunities Clause, you know, which is hardly ever enforced. It's a lot of the, it's enforcement of the Due Process Clause. I know this is getting slightly far afield from the, the First Amendment, but it's it's something that I've always wondered and want to oh, take this it's, brief it's digression.
0: Not, it's not at all, and it's just such a great set of questions. And so, um, I think the anti-federalists were right, and I think the federalists were right. And the only person who wasn't right is Robert Bork, who was my teacher. And (laughs) and it's because he knew no history. He got me interested in history because he said, oh, you know, originalism is important. He persuades me of that. And so I have spent my life actually studying the very history that he said was important but knew nothing about. So I'm I'm being fierce here. But I knew him. Was my teacher and he didn't know his history at all and I just wrote an 832 page history book and it's one of you know several you know big epic history books that I've written because he persuaded me i I owe it to him since um, since you mentioned um, Harry Potter um, I actually wrote uh, a tribute essay to him um, uh, 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 when he passed away and it's basically um I, I thought about this as I wrote it Harry Potter and Snape when I had him as a teacher I kind of You know, pushed back against him in all sorts of ways, and I now realize um, that um, he has had, you know, it was um, had a much bigger influence on me than I understood. As as Harry Potter ages, he comes to have a different understanding of of Severus Snape. Okay, and as I've aged, I've I've I've, I've come to mellow in my um, take on work.
1: But but was he was he right functionally? if not theoretically. No, he
0: like... was wrong in every way. And I'll, I'll come to that. Maybe we don't call it the ninth amendment. We call it substantive due process, but we have a robust unenumerated rights tradition. And he didn't get it because he didn't actually know history and, and, and know the deep context. So no, it's it's ridiculous and offensive to call something in the constitution an inkblot. How can you, you're not taking it seriously because um, really? They, they wrote an inkblot in the... Con- Maybe, but I'd want a lot of evidence before I thought that they wrote something that was unintelligible. It's just, <laughs> he didn't want to deal with it, okay? And and to actually understand it, he would have had to, uh, uh, He... He wasn't in his bones in the story and neither was Scalia. And there have been people who have been in their bones in the Clarence Thomas... Is much more interested in history and, and and reads about it. You know, I'm a Democrat. He's a Republican. I'm left of center. He's right of center. Clarence Thomas, but he studies history in a way that Bork and Scalia, frankly, didn't. So let me you
1: kind of you kind of see that in some of Clarence Thomas's uh, writings on privileges and Munitions Clause, for example.
0: Can. Um, and and so let me just take a step back and say, okay, the Federalists were right and the Anti-Federalists, they were both right. And the compromise is the Ninth Amendment. So here's now we're filling in all the, the missing pieces and we're, we have to get to Reconstruction because it's really important.
1: Uh, yeah, I've got a bunch of questions on Reconstruction as so, so you so, talk about um, it. And,
0: and, 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 and so because um, uh, originally the First Amendment, just to cut to the Reconstruction story, was about um, it, it says religion and it says speech, but they were put together for reasons having to do with um, the, the powers of Congress. Um, But by the time of the 14th Amendment, they get put together, they get reinterpreted saying, oh, it's because religious speech is important because actually you can't separate religious speech from political speech. And of course, they would think that the Reconstruction generation, because um, the Crusade against slavery was a political crusade, but it was also a religious crusade, you see, led by abolitionists who were leading preachers and, 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 and family members of preachers like Harriet Beecher Stowe. So, okay, so eventually we're going to reinterpret our First Amendment. We're going to say it's first because it's the most important, and it combines religion and speech um, because we have to protect religious speech, and that's going to be a reconstruction story. So We're going to get to that eventually, um, but take a step back. Why were the anti-federalists right? Because first of all, because the federalists say, oh, there's no power to regulate speech or press in the first place. So why do you need to uh, protect it? Um, And there's no power to have unreasonable searches and seizures. There's no power to um, um, abrogate jury trial. And the anti-federalists say, first of all, you're going to be able to regulate um, um, uh, the territories and the District of Columbia. And there there's actually plenary power. You're going to be just like a state government, and state governments have bills of rights. So Congress, when you're regulating the territories and D.C., which is where the seat of government, you're going to have plenary power too. You should have a bill of rights um, when you're, in effect, sitting um, in the in the in the shoes of, of a state legislature. That's point one. Point two. What are you talking about? There's no power not to have juries. You've got an Article 3, you're going to have to have courts. Article 3 actually says um, that there must be juries, but it doesn't say they have to come from a district. It doesn't say actually that there has to be a speedy trial or a public trial. Um, So there is enumerated power over the, the judiciary, but you just haven't put in proper rights. What do you mean that there's no power to have unreasonable search and seizures? You said there's tax power and you said you have Congress is going to have power to pass necessary and proper laws. Now necessary and proper laws to Im- implement tax um, power is going to involve searching and seizing warehouses and ships and all the rest to make sure that there's not smuggling going on. So, so, um, it's just not true that there's no enumerated power over certain things. Um, and, um, and so here's actually what the federals say. Um, it's like the triple dog bite defense. I don't own a dog. It didn't bite you when you kicked it first. Um, uh, a bill of rights is, is bad and unnecessary. Oh, and besides, we already have one. We already have protections of jury trial and, and no bill of attainder, no exposed law. Well, if you already have one, then it's not a bad thing, you see. So when they say simultaneously, we, you know, we don't, um, a bill of rights would be a bad idea and we already have it. That's what federalists say. And they change their mind because the argument wasn't good. What really happened? Here's what really happened. They retired at Philadelphia. They didn't give sufficient thought to George Mason's proposal, um, and they blew him off. And he's one of three people who refuses to sign the Constitution. This was a mistake on their part. And when he goes public in the press with uh, the, the three people who don't sign are Elbridge Gerry from Massachusetts, George Mason from Virginia, and the governor of Virginia, Edmund Randolph. George Mason goes public with his reasons, and prominent among his reasons are: there's no Bill of Rights. Ordinary people, even before George Mason, are seeing there's no Bill of Rights. The Federalists are on the defensive. People hate to admit they make a mistake. You know, believe it or not, that, that's not just true today. That's true back then. So they come up with baloney reasons, kind of in a way. They're just trying to you know explain why they goofed. And they said, well, you know, Bill of Rights is dangerous. You don't really need one, and besides, we have one. Um, and those three don't add up. They they get Push back and push back and push back and eventually say, okay, we're going to need to pivot here. Otherwise, we're not going to get the, the Constitution ratified. We'll work with you on the Bill of Rights. So that's why the Anti-Federalists were right about a whole bunch of things analytically. Here's where the Federalists will write. And partly is face-saving. Gee, we have to be concerned. We have, we have to be careful because we don't want an, a Bill of Rights, um, if we adopt it, to somehow imply that these are the only rights because we may not be able to we may forget something we may not to be able to itemize and categorize all the rights it's also face saving for them because they can say oh there was a reason we didn't compose um uh, rights because we we were worried about um being insufficiently inclusive the problem is you already have a, a, a habeas clause in the constitution and a no ex post facto clause in the constitution and a no bill of attainder clause in the Constitution and a provision of jurisdiction, you already have a kind of incomplete list of rights. So so you, th- that was already a problem. But face savingly you know, they say okay, there, there's a problem if we list rights. So the Ninth Amendment is a beautiful compromise. The Federalists and the Anti-Federalists get together. The Anti-Federalists are being brought on board. They're being listened to. Um... Uh, And the federalists are saving face and actually making an improvement saying this list of rights is not exhaustive. There are other rights um, that aren't textually specified. And then the game becomes, the Ninth Amendment, where where do those other rights come from? And I think they come from, and the 14th Amendment is not going to specify all the privileges and immunities that states can't abridge. Um, um, But here's what I want to say just on those two things, because there are non-specified privileges and immunities and unenumerated Ninth Amendment rights. First, read the words of the 14th Amendment. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Now, here's what I want your audience to hear. That's building on the language of the First Amendment, which says Congress shall make no law which shall abridge the freedom of speech of the press. Shall, make, no, law, abridge. Those are all in the First Amendment. Those are all the 14th Amendment. So the 14th Amendment is obviously building on the first in some interesting ways. Monkeys sitting at a typewriter wouldn't have that that similar word pattern. No shall make law a bridge. Here's the big difference. The 14th Amendment says states and localities, cities, counties, all the rest, can't mess with these fundamental rights. The original Bill of Rights limited only the federal government. The first word of the First Amendment, Congress shall make no law. Why? Because the Anti-Federalists were freaked out about federal power and they tended to trust states and localities. And there were state bills of rights. By the time of the 14th Amendment, it becomes clear. Oh, states are violating fundamental rights um, of of, of free blacks and and, 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 and whites. They're making it a crime to criticize slavery. Um, We need a second Bill of Rights limiting states and localities especially after the Civil War, the states misbehaved with secession. We need a second Bill of Rights against the localities, just like the framers needed a first Bill of Rights against the central government. Put a different way. The Constitution is the product of our history, most essentially our uh, wars. The Revolutionary War, who are the bad guys? London, Parliament, the central government. We're afraid Congress is going to become very arrogant and unrepresentative. We need rights against the central government because the American Revolution is localist against the center. Civil war who misbehaves states, they take up arms against a duly elected government, just like you know, the, the January 6th storming the Capitol even though Biden was duly elected. Um, so, so the second Bill of Rights after the Civil War is a Bill of Rights against states which have misbehaved. Okay? So, but shall make no law a bridge in both amendments. But you can't enumerate all the rights because um, uh, there are just so many. So the Ninth Amendment says this isn't exhaustive. Privileges and Use Clause doesn't specify all the things that states can't do. It, it sort of gestures at the more global. Where do we find unenumerated enumerated rights? I would say in state constitutions, in the Declaration of Independence, in American um, culture and, and, and tradition. In, um, um, uh, we find it in America, um, and judges don't make it up, but they, they're not all itemized.
1: I realize we're at an hour here. Do you have a few more minutes for a few oh, more Oh, of course. Questions? Okay, great. Because I, I want to actually quote from you on the Reconstruction Amendments, because you argue that freedom of expression was kind of central to what they were doing there. You say, the Civil War generation textualized their prism in the Reconstruction Amendments themselves. For them, the First Amendment was indeed first, not just in text, but in importance. Reconstruction Republicans had seen with their own eyes massive suppression of political speech and religious speech. You quote, uh, quoting you elsewhere, the Republican Party had been functionally outlawed in the deep south in the 1850s. Men of the cloth had been prosecuted and imprisoned, indeed threatened with capital punishment for preaching in the pulpit that slavery was sin. And Lincoln had gotten zero. And I didn't know this. This is a, fact, a new fact for me. You got zero popular votes south of Virginia. In yeah, not, not
0: electoral votes, popular votes, because the Republican Party was criminalized in the 1850s way more than the Communist Party, let's say, in the 1950s.
1: Yeah, you say the basic slogan of the Republican Party in the presidential election of 1856, which had Fremont as the Republican nominee, I believe, did indeed treat expression rights as first freedoms. The party thus famously stood for, quote, and this is their slogan, free speech, free press, free men, free labor, free territory, and Fremont, their nominee.
0: Right. This is their tip of canoe and Tyler, too, make America great again, Open <laughs> change. I like like That's their slogan, and their slogan is because they're punning, Fremont. They believe in free speech, free soil, free territory, free press. And all of these freedoms had come under attack um, by state and local governments. So you need this second Bill of Rights. No state shall. But note how, again, it's picking up on some of the same words. No, shall, make, law, abridge. But now we're limiting not just Congress and the federal government in the anti-federalist tradition, but states and localities in a reconstruction republic reconstruction Republican nationalist tradition.
1: So so those those reconstruction amendments, I think, kind of did did a lot of what the original Bill of Rights couldn't do or wasn't interpreted to do. I, and I don't want <laughs> I don't want you to wiggle out of the question, and I maybe didn't ask it directly previously. Do you think Ultimately, it was a good idea to include the Bill of Rights. Absolutely.
0: No, it's central because I think the Federalists goofed at Philadelphia. They didn't think about it very much. They just wanted to get out of town to go home to their um, wives um, and their, their, their families. Um, um, I, I basically say they, they were hot and homesick. And then they switched and they switched. First of all, but
1: does separate- your approval of the, the, the Bill of Rights, does your idea that that was a good idea, rest on a invigorated Ninth Amendment that didn't actually come into fruition?
0: Ah, so, so let me, okay, so several, so, so here's why the Bill of Rights was a great idea at every level. Okay. Because substantively they made a mistake and they came up with baloney excuses, you know, it's bad and we have one. You know, it's it's like in Annie Hall, the food is horrible in such small portions. OK, um, Bill of Rights is dangerous. Oh, and we already have one. No attainder, no ex post facto law, um, um, and, and no title of nobility, uh, a jury trial. Um, um, uh, um, so um, uh, uh, so their arguments for not having a Bill of Rights were not good. Um, a, a Bill of Rights, if it's a bad idea, oh why do states have them? You know, are all the states stupid? No, it's a good idea. Um, And so they were substantively right to pivot. They were also right to pivot. Suppose the Bill of Rights wasn't such a good idea, but if a lot of people think it is, and you want to actually listen to them, and and you want to actually, because it's not so easy to govern America 51, 40. the constitution barely gets ratified in a whole bunch of places. Bring people into the coalition, bring them into the tent, Create a government of national unity. Um, so, so the, politically, it was smart because it's now bringing the anti in and making them partners, making them co-authors of the project. Saying, "Hey, we're listening to you. Um, even even if your ideas aren't brilliant, as long as they're not horrible, now you're you're part of the project as well." And 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 freedom of speech, you know, the press is ultimately in part about um, um, h- how we how we work together as a society. Um, uh, and, and, and so that was brilliant, but they saved face. They said, actually, we did have one genuinely realistic concern. The federal government is a government of enumerated powers. State governments aren't. Um, and so we don't want to imply that the federal government has more power than it does by identifying certain rights um, that suggest that there was power to begin with. Um, and by the way, even um, um, apart from the federalism issue, we're not sure we can itemize all the rights. There's so many more than, than we might be able to specify. And that becomes the Ninth Amendment. It's a brilliant idea. Now, so that's all good. So who's bad? Judges have been bad, you know, from Bork on down, in not taking the, the, the um, Ninth Amendment seriously. And for the longest time, not paying attention to the privileges or immunities clause of the Fourteenth Amendment. But... But in fact, even though they don't say Ninth Amendment, they don't say privileges and immunities. In fact, judges do at their best, and have for a, a fair amount of time, recognized unenumerated rights. That's Griswold versus Connecticut. Um, that where, where, for example, does the Constitution's text say that a criminal defendant has a right to take the stand? It doesn't, and yet courts enforce that nine. There are a robust tradition of unenumerated rights. We don't call them by their proper names, which is ninth amendment and privileges and immunities. We call them by this unfortunate phrase, substantive due process. Uh, That
1: was going to be my next question. I was like, uh, have judges had the wrong parts of the constitution doing the work, the the ninth amendment and the privileges or immunities clause? uh, I believe like the privileges or immunities clause has only been utilized to like, to, to recognize a right to use like federal uh, waterways. Yeah, yeah. It's like something uh, ridiculous like okay. that. So,
0: so this is like, see people who don't take the text of the constitution seriously make all sorts of objections, but sometimes the objections cancel out. Okay. They say, Oh, um, substantive process is made up. Um, so the constitution's text doesn't matter. And, and the ninth amendment and the privileges and Immunities Clause are disregarded. So the constitution's text doesn't matter. And I'm, I'm like someone saying, Oh, I found two unmatched socks in, <laughs> in my dryer. I'm going to put them together. That's actually a pair. Um, in fact, the Constitution's text is being um, uh, followed. It's just um, um, n- not perfectly. We're calling privileges and immunities of the Ninth Amendment, substantive due process, when we should call them Ninth Amendment and privileges or immunities. But here's one bigger point. That's a te- that was descending into some sort of technical luring. Here's the biggest uh, point about judges. So, so I think bill of rights was a good idea it was a good idea politically because federalists and anti-federalists who had been at each other's throats are actually working together wouldn't it be great if parties actually worked together um and substantively i i like what it says um and i think the ninth amendment is a really good idea judges have not been always the heroes of the story here's the point for the longest time judges didn't enforce the first amendment actually john adams um Uh, Signs a law that makes it a crime to criticize John Adams, and federal judges happily enforce that law. They throw people in prison for criticizing the government. Um, um, uh, States are making it a crime to to engage in core political expression, and judges don't do anything. Um, Even after the First Amendment is adopted, even after the Fourteenth Amendment is adopted, judges in America aren't protecting core rights of expression. They're making up sometimes, you know, rights of corporations or of, of, of property folk, um, um, but they're not. And it's not until the 1930s, the first time the United States Supreme Court ever invalidates any law in the name of free expression as 1930s, some state laws. The first time the U.S. Supreme Court strikes down a federal law, an act of Congress, as a violation of the First Amendment is 1965, Lamont versus Postmaster General. And in the meantime, judges, unfortunately are um, um, uh, upholding abridgments of freedom of speech in the press. The two most dramatic, um, three most dramatic. First, the Sedition Act that John Adams signed into law. Um, later on, um, Woodrow Wilson is gonna um, enforce a law um, against Eugene Victor Debs, gives an anti-war speech, an anti-World War I speech. This is a guy who gets a million votes for president twice, and he's put in prison, sentenced to prison for 10 years for giving basically an anti-war speech, no different than a George McGovern speech or a Bernie Sanders speech in later generations, and he's unanimous the Supreme Court unanimously puts him in prison for ten years. Harding will eventually, you know, a, a, a pardon him, but the court isn't enforcing robustly um, uh, expressive freedoms until very late in the game. Today they are, um, and and but they didn't for the longest time. But don't blame. The bill of rights for that don't blame the ninth amendment for that don't blame the 14th amendment for that. blame the judges because people like bork are saying these are inkblots they're not inkblots you know actually read the damn thing you know study it um, people died for it and 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 take it seriously and and people and but the only way you'll know all of that is if you know your history because the words themselves you know can be read in different ways and read out of the constitution History is very powerful, and that's why I write these books, inspired by Bohr. He said, Oh, you gotta pay attention to originalism. Originalism is not inherently conservative. Hugo Black was an originalist, and he's the driving force of the Warren Court. The Ninth Amendment actually can protect unenumerated rights like, like Griswold versus Connecticut, the right of, of of marital privacy. Um, so, um, um
1: uh, 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 Well, it's that that precise argument that Frederick Douglass essentially eventually came around to, right? That the Constitution is a promissory note, even if it isn't as forced as the history or the the text should suggest. Martin
0: King, in what we call the I Have a Dream speech, actually, before he he found that uh, theme toward the end of his, his remarks about I Have a Dream, he actually It was actually the promissory note speech. The Constitution has all these promises and and they're, they're not being um, um, p- delivered. The,
1: the Debs scenario is astounding because another argument you make, which we probably should have gotten to earlier, is essentially that the whole American experiment presupposes freedom of expression, right? Because self-government, Requires freedom of expression. Even because if there weren't
0: a First Amendment, you'd have to have core political expression in order to have free and fair elections. And Madison says that um, in the Virginia and Kentucky Resolves. Um, he says that even in 1794. He says the nature of republican government, a government of the people, is that the people get to criticize the government, and the government can't basically, you know, try to censor the the, the people. He and that's gets,
1: exactly what they did with Debs.
0: That is, and but note that word republican. OK, it's the same word as people in Latin, but it's also the same word as publish and a publication. So what's so interesting is, you, as we talked about before, we have freedom of the press before the First Amendment. The press publishers are publishing the Constitution and the entire Constitution. The reason it's short is so it can be in newspapers and state constitutions. Were in newspapers. And the Declaration of Independence was designed to be published in newspapers. And so you cannot have this is really one of the biggest themes of my new book. The American constitutional tradition is all about a culture of newspapers in particular and, and free expression more generally. It needs to have robust, uninhibited, wide open free expression. Well, the big, the big we six found founders. Even, even when judges don't always enforce it. At, you know, um, So, for example, the Sedition Act. Here's how I end the book. It's the, it's the last words of the book. On the um, a 14th anniversary of the death, uh, the book ends in 1840. Um, and on July 4th, 1840, July 4th, the 14th anniversary of the death of Adams and Jefferson. They both die on the same day. July 4th, 1826, the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. Remember, Adams restricted freedom with the Sedition Act. Jefferson and, and Madison are trying to defend Free expression, and on the fourteenth, and judges are siding with Adams. They're putting people in prison for criticizing the government. But on the fourteenth anniversary of Adams and Jefferson's death, a law is passed saying the Sedition Act was wrong. It was a mistake. With the benefit of hindsight, this was as unconstitutional a statute as any ever adopted. Um, and we now hereby apologize for that statute, and we pay back fines that were imposed on uh, people under the Original Sedition Act. And that's what Congress does on July 4th, 1840. Um, And and the Supreme Court's not going to say that until New York Times versus Sullivan in the 1960s, but Congress actually apologized for it uh, earlier. Courts haven't always understood this, but today the good news is I would say freedom of expression is um, respected by liberals and conservatives.
1: You are you've argued a little bit too much in some cases. You, yes. you have you have you have certain claims uh, being made under the guise of freedom of expression that probably shouldn't.
0: Yes, um, but I I do think Citizen United was rightly decided actually, and it wasn't about campaign contributions; it was about ads.
1: Well, well, I agree. I mean, you couldn't if your whole argument is that newspapers formed the bulk of our political conversation, you know, was a driving force behind the First Amendment. Citizens United, you know, if you look at corporations and speech and it had to do with a movie about a politician, right? You it, That would have curtailed the Citizens United or the, um, what was it, the McCain, whatever the act the was, McCain was in Fine place. Book. It would have, Textually prevented newspapers from endorsing candidates, from right, running right. So ads because, for those because, candidates. Because like
0: Newspapers are corporations and they get to endorse candidates and they get to cover candidates with favorable press coverage or unfavorable cre- pre- press coverage. You have to be able to take out an ad in a newspaper saying, vote for Amar, vote for Nico. And um, that's core. Now, here's the tension. Freedom of many of the First Amendment rights are very egalitarian. Freedom of speech, everyone can speak. Um, um, in in uh, that wonderful uh, Norman Rockwell um, painting, the guy's a working class guy. He's wearing a leather jacket. His hands um, are the hands of a working person, but it's a town meeting and he's going to get up and, he, and people are going to listen to him, you know, even though he's not wealthy. Maybe he's going to talk about a pothole or uh, or school board policy or something. Um, assembly, that each one of us has one body that we can bring to the political uh, gathering. A petition, each one of us has one signature we can add. Um, free exercise, you know, each of us has one soul. So a lot of the First Amendment is very egalitarian. Now, freedom of the press is a little different because back then, not everyone had a printing press. You know, um, a, a few wealthy people had a printing press. But um, uh, uh, the point is, the New York Times is allowed to editorialize, allowed to endorse, allowed to cover things. And they're a corporation. And, and Random House is a corporation, and thank God for them uh, because they published, you know, a book of mine that I wrote in 2005, and Basic Books is a corporation, and I'm so grateful to them for uh, publishing the words that made us. So, um, um, and if you don't like the ad, don't listen to it. Here's what I love about ads. They have no effect at all. It's not Campaign contributions are stinky because politicians sometimes find ways of, of putting the money in their own pocket. They use it for private purposes. But an ad works if it works only if it persuades actual voters on election day. One person, one vote, secret ballot, and corporations don't vote on election day to to, to vote for Smith or, or, or vote for Jones or vote for Nico or vote for Akhil.
1: Well, that's well, that's I think one of the underlying assumptions with the criticisms behind you know these independent expenditures is that individuals. It, it's a it's a skepticism of democracy. It's a yes. presume it presumes that people don't have agency because there's something that stands between the ad and the office, and it's the voter.
0: Exactly. I couldn't have put it better myself. Perfect. I'm gonna I'm gonna steal that from you. Just, <laughs> because and and that's what makes all because if you say, well, people are sheep, they're just too stupid to their, uh, uh, know their own minds, well then we can't have elections and the whole then system. The experiments failed. has failed,
1: yeah. Yes.
0: It, our system presupposes Voters are able to make up their minds on the basis of information, and we can't allow the government to suppress that information flow.
1: The argument That's that you I made, believe. yes, and I and, and I agree. And, and, and
0: conservancy. So I'm with the conservatives on Citizens United. I'm with the liberals, for example, in saying um, government shouldn't be allowed to um, uh, um, to uh, use it, its funds to um, shut down legal aid societies in various ways. I do think today. The First Amendment um, uh, has a lot of friends on the court. Um, and sometimes maybe they carry it a little too far when they s- treat campaign contributions, which are very different than ads, as if, you know, that's um, pure speech because it's not, it's closer to a bribe. Or when they say um, um, any, um, when, when they when they say government, when it's regulating commercial advertising, um, um, it should be severely restricted. I think government should be able to say, um, um, cigarette companies have to have mandatory um, warning labels and and have to we have to be able to regulate misleading commercial advertising A government shouldn't be trusted to regulate misleading political ads because i don't just don't trust the government to do that but but they have to be able to to basically say to uh, put up billboards saying don't smoke you know and prohibit billboards saying do smoke um, because that's connected to uh, and here's why, because the government could prohibit uh, uh, tobacco altogether it can't prohibit elections, but it can prohi- it could prohibit the buying and selling of of alcohol or tobacco or gambling
1: but there, there should be there should be some sort of health or safety net. I think you and I would slightly disagree with this, and I don't want to get too far afield, but like let's say for example, back in the you know six, seven years ago when the state of new York or the city of New York, didn't like Uber coming in, right? They they thought these were unregulated, They that um, the they wouldn't be as safe as taxi drivers, and they sought to shut it down. Uber, in response, put out a big advertising campaign, mobilized all of its users who fell in love with its products to push back against it. I worry about situations, or you have the whole discussion around cryptocurrency and the regulation of that, and you have some of the big... Um, you have some of the big companies like Coinbase, for example, petitioning the government for redress of grievance, organizing things. I, I worry about limiting commercial speech too much. I think there's a stronger argument when, when there's a health nexus, perhaps, on tobacco advertisements, but I, I worry about it, the slippery slope there,
0: especially. I, and when, I do too. I'm not saying that commercial advertising ha, has no protection whatsoever. That, that, um, um, and, and, and especially but you wouldn't when, give it strict scrutiny. Exactly. The, the point is the following. It's just very simple. We have to regulate the commercial domain differently than the political domain when it comes to free speech discourse. Here's why. Because um, at a certain point, we government has to be able to say um, of a company, this is just fraud. You're, you're making false representations in the name of consumer protection. We prohibit you from declaring that cigarettes are safe. That's just a health and safety um, uh, consumer protection. So we have to actually be able to regulate um, um, what advertisers can say about their products. They can't lie about their products.
1: Isn't that already illegal, though? Well,
0: but but here's the point. Politicians get to puff and lie all the time. (laughs) So what I'm saying is the Federal Election Commission actually shouldn't be allowed to regulate political puffery and misstatements to the same extent that the Food and Drug Administration is allowed or the Consumer um, Protection um, uh, Bureau is allowed, to um, uh, the Federal Trade Commission is allowed to regulate misleading um, uh, a- a commercial advertising. It, it can't be governed by the same set of First Amendment rules. So, so there's going to have to be some difference and, and here are two reasons why the biggest is I don't trust government to tell me what's politically true and not true.
1: Yeah, you need to establish a sort of ministry of truth uh, exactly. in order. to do that. Tr-
0: But we do have a ministry of truth when it comes to advertising drugs um, or toys. Um, there, you can't say this toy is safe if it's not safe. You know, you you can't say, for example, this is going to help you lose weight if it's not going to help you lose weight. So, so we do in fact today and have to, um, so um, regulate them differently. So I worry that if um, um, uh, commercial speech is treated identically with political speech, either we're going to have too much regulation of political speech, which would be bad, or um, insufficient uh, regulation of. Of, of, of false commercial claims, um, which should also be bad. So we're gonna to need to have some kind of distinction between political speech. And now you might say, well, Amar, where does that come from? That distinction between commercial and political speech? Here's one way it comes from. Um, so, cause the word speech doesn't distinguish, true. So what kinds of speech? I say political speech his core because even if there weren't a the First Amendment, you'd have to protect that because it it, it it's about how uh, free free and fair elections. What about religious speech? Oh, you'd have to protect that because of f- the free exercise clause and the connection between um, religious discourse and political discourse. Whom did we invoke earlier? We invoked Martin King. Martin King was a political actor, but if you had asked him to describe himself, he never would have said, "I'm a civil rights leader," which is how we describe him today. He would have said, "I'm a preacher." Of the gospel, first the gospel of Jesus Christ, first, last, and always. Everything that I've ever done comes out of that. The abolitionists were a religious left. You see, we've had religious right, we had a religious left. So by the time of the 1860s, people understand. Oh, we got to protect religious speech in order to protect political speech that are connected. What about artistic speech? Why well, would say that's an unenumerated right? Even if you didn't have the First Amendment, you know, it's it's part of um, uh, American identity. Okay, now why is Uh, Commercial speech is different. It's not quite artistic self expression. It's not quite a sort of religious about free exercise and people's souls. It's not quite political speech, which is, um, you know, how we govern ourselves. But but where textually would I say political speech has extra special protection? Because the very word speech, the very phrase, the freedom of speech, historically, this is what, you know, um, um, Robert Bork is telling me, learn history, comes from the freedom of speech and debate in Parliament. It goes back to an earlier document in 1689, 100 years before Madison exactly, the English Bill of Rights of 1689 um, and it talks about the freedom of speech and debate in Parliament. What is Parliament? From the French parler to speak, it's a place for a parley, for a certain kind of discourse but it's not a place to sell Marlboro cigarettes, you know, or uh, liquor. It's place for a political discourse so freedom the freedom of speech textually and historically was always connected with political discourse and not commercial and buying and selling of things because parliament is not a place where you're buying and selling marlboro cigarettes it is a place where there's political discourse it's
1: where you're parlaying uh the the the, yes parley, which comes from the french word um as you discuss in some of your art- articles here, but is the 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 word the the operative word in that sense? Because we often forget. We think Congress shall make no law respecting you know the freedom of speech. We think abridging oh it's very abridging of freedom of speech. We often think oh it's so clear. You know all speech is free. Congress shall make no law. But as Jeffrey Stone argues, the. Suggests a concept of freedom of speech yes, assist- that needs to be defined.
0: I agree completely. And Alexander Micklejohn thought that and Harry Calvin thought that and, and Owen Fist thought that. And I think that it's Congress can pass laws abridging speech, but not a thing called the freedom of speech, which is nearly an absolute. And what is the freedom of speech in parliament? Here's what it is. As I understand it, if it's in order for someone to get up and say, I support this bill. A 3.5 trillion dollar package or whatever or you know obama if one person get up and say i support this bill someone else has to be able to get up and say i oppose this bill what it is is the near absolute freedom of political expression political opinion um and and that's nearly absolute and and and, and rockwell captures it beautifully what's his image of freedom of speech his four freedoms he has Freedom of worship, you know, and freedom from want, freedom of, um, uh, from, from fear. His image, uh, and maybe you can even put it up on your show notes because it's so powerful. Freedom of speech is a guy, he's from New Hampshire or Massachusetts. He's wearing a leather jacket. Maybe he's a mechanic. Maybe he's a farmer, um, you know, um, uh, a tradesman of a certain sort. His hands are very much the hands of a working class person. He's got a, a rolled up piece of paper in his um, um, in his uh, 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 pocket because he's not used to public speaking, but he's standing up and people are going to listen to him attentively um, um, because that's what the freedom of speech is in a town meeting. People get to get up and, and express their political views. It's freedom. It's the, it's a system of political discourse. And it's, by the way, it's not just the freedom to speak. It's the freedom of speech. So I have a right as a listener To hear someone else, and I mean that's the
1: Frederick Douglass argument. I even
0: um, it may have a duty. I believe as a citizen, I have a right to vote, but a duty, a responsibility to vote, to do jury service, to pay my taxes, and I don't think I can do that if I don't every day um, read Fox and Wall Street Journal, as well as the New York Times and MSNBC, because um, I'm supposed to be listening to all of my. You know, fellow citizens, it's not just the freedom of speech it's the freedom, uh, freedom to speak is the freedom of speech, freedom to listen. Um, and that's what's so impressive about the First Amendment is it came about because the Federalists listened to the anti-Federalists and made common cause. So it's so poetic, you see that. Um, and, and 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 it talks about the, the bread of the people to petition assembly, assemble and the Second Amendment is about the right of the people to keep and bear arms and the right of the people to be secure against unreasonable searches and seizures and the Fourth Amendment and the Ninth and the Tenth uses the phrase the people also. Five references to the people. Where is it coming from? From the preambles, we the people. It's coming out of a process in which we the people are deliberating with each other and talking to each other, listening to each other, working with each other. It's a system. And wow, um, it's... Um, It's extraordinary.
1: I'm tempted to end there, but if if you have time for one more question, you know, in the context of of some of this, it's maybe a little bit further afield, but something I've always kind of wondered, you know, I don't think Americans are educated a lot about the Articles of Confederation. I know very little about the Articles of Confederation, but in, in... in talking about freedom of speech in the United States, whenever someone brings a free speech claim now, they bring it under the First Amendment, the federal constitution. It's very rare that they're ever brought under uh, state constitutions, although I, I believe New Jersey has a very strong protection. So so it's sometimes brought there. Do you – kind of a, a – the, be- the
0: prunyard case, yes. Yeah.
1: Do you believe that there was any redeeming qualities of the Articles of Confederation in this context or other contexts – especially when you see today the progressive, and I mean this temporally, not politically, concentration of power within the federal government, which I don't believe even when they constructed our current constitution, they envisioned that so much power in the executive, for example. Um, But was it necessary to get rid of it because it was not a good confederation or constitution for a new nation because you almost needed a strong federal central government in constructing a new nation might have been a better government for something that was all it was was more strongly established or had been established longer.
0: We needed to get rid of it. And it has some admirable features, and I'm going to read you with permission about a page from the book. Of course, please. Um, But my my book, um, there's a whole chapter on the Articles Confederation and um, and why they collapsed, and they had to because they weren't sufficient to protect America. Foreign threats. The Constitution is basically designed by and for George Washington, so he can protect us uh, against the Brits, the French, and the Spanish, because they could come back. Yeah, we beat them once, but they could come back. So the Articles weren't strong enough to basically protect America against um, foreign threats. So that's why the Preamble talks about common defense so so powerfully. So the Articles weren't working. In in a nutshell, you need a navy. You need an army for that. You need taxes and articles, and you need to regulate commerce and, and the West. And the Articles couldn't do that very well. That said, the Articles had some brilliant features, and I'm going to read you um, um, two of them. One about three. One about a Bill of Rights that the, Art- that the Articles of Confederation came up with in a certain way. One about anti-slavery provisions that the Articles of Confederation generated, and one about treating people in the West um, with respect. Um, And the Brits didn't do that to Americans, but the Americans are going to do that on the coast. They're going to treat with respect their Western cousins. So here's the passage. Um, um, So on June, excuse me, July 13th, 1787, as the Philadelphia framers are coming up with a new constitution, the Federation Congress is coming up with a thing called the Northwest Ordinance to regulate the, the West. Western settlers were offered a basic bill of rights, um, quote, as articles of compact between the original states and the people, uh, um, in, in the, uh, 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 let me stand back. Western settlers were offered a basic bill of rights, quote, as articles of compact between the original states and the people and states of the said territories. that would be forever unalterable, unless by common consent. So, so, See, when the Constitution doesn't have a Bill of Rights, and yet the Northwest Ordinance did, that's, you know, it's not just the states have it, You know, the Northwest Ordinance had one. This rights catalog expressly included the free exercise of religion, trial by jury, habeas corpus, due process, a common law judicial system, just compensation for takings of private property, a ban on immoderate fines and improper punishments, broad access to bail, protections against contractual impairments, a promise of a properly apportioned local assembly, and more. The ordinance also embraced egalitarian inheritance rules, restricting old world primogeniture, and provided for a system of public education. Wow, that's impressive. Um, so, in um, um, emphatic... Okay, so... then, The ordinance also said this, and then I talk about a whole bunch of other impressive things that it says. Quote, There shall be neither slavery nor involuntary servitude in the said territory, otherwise than the punishment of crimes whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, unquote. So they prohibiting slavery in the West, in the Northwest. Some thirty years later, a lad who would grow up to be history's most famous Northwesterner would move with his family into this region. The family was drawn to this region in part by the free soil vision of the ordinance. When this lad, Abraham Lincoln, became a man, he would spearhead an amendment to the US Constitution would take the ordinances, anti-slavery words, virtually verbatim, and make them the supreme law of the land for all America, not just for lands north and west of Ohio. So the Northwest Ordinance came from the Articles of Confederation Congress, and it was a proto-13th Amendment, abolished slavery. Wow. Okay. And here's how I end. So it had a Bill of Rights, you know, that was in the Northwest Ordinance. It prohibited slavery for the Northwest. That's impressive. And finally, it treated the newer Americans um, equally with the older Americans. Here's how I end this. And I'm going to take us back to chapter one, that very first um, passage that I read before. In proclaiming George Third king from the courthouse balcony in the waning hours of 1760, because uh, that's how I begin with you know uh, um, America uh, hailing George III, um, the English-born and royally appointed governor, Francis Bernard, aptly enough, had faced east toward London, Toward the past. Most of his American-born audience, doubtless unaware of the poetic portent of their stance, had faced west, toward Lexington and to Concord, toward the future, toward the vast continent that stretched out before them, and toward unborn states that would one day join the first 13 as full and equal citizens. In the 1760s and early 1770s, arrogant Londoners had treated their western cousins in the colonies like children, and the Confederation Congress's single most impressive accomplishment, its members renounced all pretension to lord over their own Western cousins. So that's pretty impressive. It, it failed for certain reasons. It had to fail, but it still did some pretty impressive things.
1: And I, and I think that's kind of a poetic note to end on here, you know, looking back towards those early Passages that we read. So, Professor, I, I'm sorry for keeping you so long. I could talk to you all day. I have more questions.
0: Let's 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 do another one in in a, in a few months.
1: Yeah, yeah, I will uh, reach back out to you, and we can hopefully continue that conversation. And, and I, we're going
0: to rebroadcast this one on our podcast with your permission.
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. I I uh, I wanted to ask you kind of about the territories and the because you had the territories and you you talk about the plenary powers and giving them bill of rights, but it's they still. Was taxation without representation, right? In a certain, but oh,
0: I, I, I skipped that passage. If you if you want it, they actually provided for the earliest possible um, uh, admission of new states as soon as actually these territories had a sufficient minimal population. They were going to be oh. admitted as new states on equal footing. I, I I jumped over some of that precisely so that this was going to be just a, a very temporary period, and then they were going to be represented just like everyone else.
1: Except uh, residents of Washington, D.C. As ah, so <laughs> that's,
0: that's yet another story for another day. <laughs> yeah. I'm in
1: Virginia. I'm actually in the part of Virginia that was reincorporated into Virginia. So I'm partially believing that that portion of D.C. that's most logically in Maryland should be Brought back. Retroceded. In the American... Yeah, yeah they, they, retroceded.
0: They, right, because that's what um, they retroceded the Virginia part. They could retrocede the, the Maryland part, except for maybe 10 square blocks or
1: something. Yeah, I think that's the compromise to make, but we can't compromise in Congress these days. So. And the,
0: but that's what the Bill of Rights you see in the First Amendment. I said, forget what its words say. Think about it at a meta level. At a meta level, what it's all about is a compromise between federalists and anti-federalists. The anti-federalists get their amendment, the federalists save face, they add a ninth amendment, um, the anti-federalists are brought on board, the federalists sort of pivot and say, actually you have a point, maybe we made a mistake. Um, Wow, that's actually the first amendment is the product of itself, free speech and free press, and a process of mutual accommodation, listening to each other.
1: Well, I appreciate you uh, listening to me for this last hour and a half. I think our listeners really, really enjoy hearing from you as well. Professor, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks. That was Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science at Yale University, Akhil Reed Amar. His new book is called The Words That Made Us, America's Constitutional Conversation, 1760 through 1840. And his excellent podcast, which I encourage you all to listen to, subscribe to, and rate, is titled America's Constitution. To learn more about Professor Amar's work, you can visit akilamar.com. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. You can learn more about So to Speak at Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk or on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. We take feedback at at fire.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review. That's what helps us bring new listeners to the show. And until next time, again, I thank you all for listening.